This is The Human and the Machine, brought to you by Editorial Intelligence. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Human and Machine, the podcast series which gives you the lowdown on the high digital era in a social context. We're interested, of course, in the technology-saturated world, but in looking at it wholly through a human lens. This episode was recorded entirely on location in the belly of the digital beast in California, Silicon Valley, California, Menlo Park, Silicon Valley, California. And it was to Facebook that we went, not to help them cut the cake for their 15th birthday party that happened at the same time, but to take part in a rather extraordinary party called Social Science Food Camp, in which 200-odd social scientists, data scientists, computer analysts, and the odd-bod academic and commentator like myself went to shoot the breeze about big data and, well, small human realities. We're grateful to Sage Publishing, O'Reilly Media and Facebook itself for giving us access to this event and bringing you highlights now. Let's get straight to it. Okay, I'm with the guy who got me to food camp here in Silicon Valley. I'm with Ziad Marah of uh, Sage Publishing. Ziad, what are we doing here walking down a cavernous corridor at Facebook? It may seem a little surprising, but actually we're here to discover the... The, the introduction of the age of computational social science, where the social scientists get to meet people in big data, new technology, find new ways to understand our world and ourselves. So you could say that you are epitomizing the whole essence of the human and the machine here, distilled into this one place, Facebook of all places, it, and it, this one conference. It couldn't be a better suited. <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't happen by accident. There was a wonderful moment yesterday. Were you in that bit where in the rock, paper, scissors, we just saw a form of social organisation unfold? It was like watching a piece of... Explain to the listeners what happened. I was there. Oh. Well, it was a, the icebreaker at the beginning of the session, and it was organised by Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media, and he had this idea to get the crowd to bond by doing rock, paper, scissors. And as he began to describe it, the game began, he wasn't even able to send it off. So he was trying to stop it, was unable to. He was saying, stop, stop, stop. But the contagion began. And then the groups just spread around and this sort of domino effect went through the whole room of 250 social scientists, data scientists, technology people doing rock, paper, scissors, cheering on each other in larger and larger groups. Within which there was a wonderful moment where Yet Sanders, who is a behavioral economics unit in the UK, was doing rock, paper, scissors with Daniel Kahneman, who won his Nobel Prize for inventing her whole field. And he had and just was beaten a, me. And he just beaten you. <laughs> and what you could just see was this was particular lovely, flow. And it was, yeah. so, it was a, a way of understanding yeah. social it's networks it's in real time unfolding and how somewhat out of control it was and at the same time quite minded. Yeah. So it was a lovely moment of sort of microcosmic little example of part of what these kinds of groups are supposed to be analysing on a much more gigantic scale. Um, I mean, it was fun. There's no real agenda though, is it? It's billed as an unconference and we've all had to pitch ideas to run sessions on giant sticky post-it notes. I mean, it's a rather wonderful That's right. organic, but does yeah. that mean that there are behavioural scientists analysing how people approach the board to put their ideas up? I mean, how big brothery is it? There was a suggestion that we should all have a little identity tag that could track us and we could watch all the networks unfold. 
and uh, we decided that would cross the creepy line. Libby, who are you and what's your interest in the social sciences? Hi, I'm Libby Hemphill. I'm an associate professor of information at the University of Michigan. I'm also the director of the Resource Center for Minority Data at ICPSR. So I'm here because I care about data infrastructures for social science as an archivist and part of ICPSR. And I study social media and political communication in my research life. So both my data life and my research life meet here in these discussions around computational social science and social media. If you had one, what the Americans call takeaway for our listeners, what would you think they should get their head more around that they don't? The kinds of things that are happening online and that we get up in arms about, about things that are happening through communication technology, are rooted in our social lives and the ways that social lives worked even before we had technologies of connection. So I think it's important for us to remember that there's a historical component to everything that's happening and there are social components that are not about the technology. So we need to be careful to consider both the technology and the socio-historical context in which we operate instead of just blaming a technology or blaming an individual or trying to understand just a moment instead of something broader. So I'm with a young man from Harvard who gave a mind-blowing presentation at Social Science Foo about deep fake. Tell me who you are. My name is Shobik Barari. I'm a first-year graduate student at the Harvard Department of Government, and I'm doing some early-stage work on deep fakes and political persuasion. What's a deep fake? So a deep fake is a video, typically of a human, either their face or their entire body, and that's been digitally altered in some way using uh, what's called deep learning, which is sort of a form of artificial intelligence that's been popularized in recent years. And one of the things you outlined was just how easy it is to make one. You, you actually made your own deep fake of President Obama, right? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, so the idea of digitally altered videos is nothing new. I mean, Hollywood has been doing that for generations. The only thing that's new is that somebody living in their parents' basement can now effectively download the software and run it from their home computer. So there's this democratization of this really powerful technology. And while that is really cool in a lot of ways, I think that has implications for our political discourse. You know, we've had this sort of epistemic fake news crisis, at least in the U.S. and other democracies around the world for the last few years. And I think that could have definitely some severe consequences. And presumably there's no putting the genie back in the bottle here. I mean, you can't unmake the technology. So what's the solution? You can't unmake the technology. Technology. I mean, it's fairly decentralized at this point. One thing that we can think about is think about uh, how we want to regulate it, you know, whether as researchers or thinking about policy. So there's been an idea of having some sort of blockchain technology or some sort of ledger to actually register or license, you know, the products of these softwares. So that's one idea. I think there, at least in the U.S., there's been talk of legislation around deepfakes to prevent malicious or bad actors from using it. So there's a lot of ways that we can kind of work around this technology without hampering it and kind of shutting it down completely. But we're surrounded by hundreds hundreds, wonderfully, of social scientists here. Oh, yeah. What are they telling us about bias and belief that mm-hmm. accompanies the way deep fakes are taken on board and acted on by people, or at least believed? Yeah, definitely. I think there is a lot of different elements to it. I think 
there's the element of exposure to this stuff, and I think research has shown that even exposure to it, even if you know that it's fake news, can um, actually increase its believability over time, which is scary. Why I think, is that? What, what is that? Tell me more about that. So I think this has roots in sort of kind of more psychological, like bottom-up kind of neurological processes. So, you know, there's been work about exposure to just fake images, and there's something about, I think, images and videos that even just exposure to it can increase their believability and their uptake, even if they're completely fake or fabricated. And so people in psychology have been doing this stuff for years, and it obviously has a lot of implications in our political discourse now. I'm with Tim O'Reilly, the founder, the father of Social Science Foo. Tim, you are, in a way, one of the veterans of the internet era, aren't you? You actually coined the phrase Web 2.0, and you've been a coder and a writer and now you write about technology and the economy so the whole how did you get into all of this and why social science food well you have to understand we've been doing food camp since 2003 and it was really just a lark in the beginning but we discovered that bringing people together for what's now called an unconference is a great way to break down boundaries and create new connections between people the very first food camp i described it as creating new synapses in the global brain and I've been really a technology activist for most of my career. I figured out you know, how to try to bring people together and recognize new communities that were emerging. For example, when I did the Open Source Summit in 1998, it was, hey, wait, these people from the Linux side don't talk to the people from the internet side. Let's bring them all together in the same, into a meeting and, and discover what they have in common. And so in a similar way, what we realized, and this really wasn't my idea, it actually came from Ziad Marar at Sage, he was saying, look, there's a new discipline of computational social science. How do we bring that together? Uh, and I'd been talking with David McCune, the founder of Sage and the past CEO, about this whole idea of how do you bring together communities. And so we said, oh, well, let's do bring together people who are interested in big data and people who are interested in social science in an event. And I asked Mark if he would host it here because, of course, this is the mother load of social data. Techno heaven. My name is Dolly Alderton. I'm a journalist, a podcast host and author of Everything I Know About Love. My techno hell is, I had it this morning actually, I put my phone on airplane mode every night and when I turn it off airplane mode in the morning, this kind of volcano of WhatsApp messages, I woke up to 53 WhatsApp messages from my, I think it's because I'm in too many friend groups. <laughs> it's just meaningless, endless, endless kind of stream of consciousness talking. So yeah, that's my hell. My techno heaven is listening to podcasts all the time. I love conversation. I love the intimacy of conversation in my ear. I spend a lot of time on my own. I work alone, I travel alone. And podcasts have accompanied me in moments where otherwise I think I might have felt a bit lonely. That was the best-selling author, Dolly Alderton, who we spoke to in Series 1. Do you have a techno heaven or a techno hell? Something you love or hate about the digital era? Well, we want to hear about it. And if your snippet gets featured, we'll send you a bunch of great books on the topic of the human and machine for your time and trouble. Just send us an MP3 recording lasting no more than 60 seconds saying who you are, what you do and what your pet techno love or hate is and email it to office at editorialintelligence.com and who knows, you could be up on the next show. Back to Social Science Foo Camp. 
and a couple of Brits that I happened to come across on my travels. In case you think this edition of The Human and the Machine is entirely filled with American voices, I have found one of the Brits that's here at Social Science Vue. I've found Marianne Seacart, the journalist, the visiting fellow at All Souls Oxford. Uh, Marianne, how is Social Science Vue for you? Oh, it's completely fascinating. I've never been to an unconference before. <laughs> In other words, it's not programmed at all. And people just put up ideas for sessions that they want to lead. And it's all very sort of spontaneous and informal and incredibly stimulating. I've met such interesting people here. My quest for Brits at this almost all-American social science food here in California has been um, boosted by the presence of two British gentlemen. And I'd like you to say your name, rank and serial number for the listeners so they can verify you are indeed British. Tom, who are you? I'm Tom Chatfield and I'm a writer and tech philosopher. My name is Julian Regini and I'm a writer and philosopher. It is quite American, isn't it, this gathering, but that doesn't put us off in any way. In fact, I, I've had the most fascinating time. How about you, Julian? Yeah, no, it is very American because it's all super exciting and kind of I have this British reserve and understatement, so I'm deeply challenged by this. But actually, to be fair, it hasn't been excessive and we probably need that little counterbalance to our negativity. What's, what, what's going on? What, what's the, as the Americans would say, the takeaway from social science food? What are we discussing here relevant to the human and the machine? Give me the headline. Oh, I'm, it seems far too diverse to have a simple sort of headline, really. I think there are lots of recurring issues, which Tom probably uh, knows more about than me because this is an area of study. But, I mean, so, for example... I think there's a lot of concern about technological warfare, what you might call it, information warfare, the fact. We're thinking of like the fake news spreading in the Russian bots, but one thing I found out is that it's much, much more complicated than that. And it's not just that people are putting out fake stuff, it's the way in which certain things are being promoted and disseminated, and the way in which people who are not anything directly to do at all with sinister foreign agencies are being used and sort of promoted and boosted by outside agencies. It's extremely complicated. And I think that's one of the sort of big concerns, I think, that's coming out of the conference. Tom, you're very much immersed in this deep tech world. And tell me about what you're picking up here. So I'm very interested, I guess, in the fact that technology is not a theory-free arena in which you put the data into the machine and it provides you with answers and solves your problems. I think there was a sort of tech utopian period when the rhetoric of algorithms will make the bad stuff go away was quite kind of prominent. And what we're seeing here, among other things, is really the idea that you know, machines provide you with answers but not questions. You need to come armed with a theory about what is better or worse for a society, about what people should aspire towards, about what platforms should and should not do. And to have that done in an informed way, you need psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, diverse thinkers to define the direction of travel for technology, to define the questions one should ask of data and not ask. And I, I find it very hopeful that we are moving perhaps beyond a is tech bad or good discourse to the fact that it's part of the fabric of our world. It mediates everything from our relationships to our voting patterns to, you know, the most intimate fabric of our lives. And we need to ask of it the questions we have always asked of our politicians, of our social structures. What do we want and why? What is the foundation for what we believe to be good or right? What do we owe each other? I love the fact that we're in Facebook and that Facebook, for all the problems they've had recently, are receptive to this discourse and are wanting to, in a sense, be given better quality questions. The Human and Machine is an auditorial production by Editorial Intelligence, the content curators. 
If you would like your own programme produced to show off your issues, your voices, your concerns, head to editorialintelligence.com to find out more. This is The Human and the Machine. Each episode in this second series of The Human and Machine, we feature the story of a socially interesting new app or website or digital service. This week, through the audio window, it's something called GitHub. So now I'm with Anna from GitHub, and I don't actually know really what GitHub is, Anna, but you do. What is GitHub? (laughs) GitHub is a collaboration platform for software development. You can think of it like a tool that helps you build things at the same time, work on code. It's a little bit like Google Docs, but uh, it allows uh, a social layer on top of uh, code development. I know you've got 30 million people on the platform. 31 million. 31 million. And are they people that ever come out into the daylight or are they sort of coders buried away? I mean, what kind of people use GitHub? That's a really good question. Uh, We just published a report about this recently. What we've learned is that our users are not just really varied amongst themselves, but a lot of our users are um, becoming a lot more international. A lot of the open source projects that we see on the platform are becoming a lot more international. And that doesn't mean just someone from outside of the US or Europe collaborating on a project that starts in the United States. That also means projects emerging in environments that solve very specific local technology needs. uh, And that is really fascinating. Is it a newish development, a little bit like the way the scientific community has always collaborated and been open source? Or has the technology community always been generous and, to use that word again, collaborative? I think that's the foundation of a lot of the technology we use today. It's always been collaborative. There has not always been a central platform for people to perform that collaboration on, but it was always collaborative in its intent because the realization a long time ago in the 80s and early 90s was that you can build a thing, but it is much better when it has a second pair of eyes on it. It is even better when it has 10 pairs of eyes on it. In other words, people. In other words, people. I'm not sure I completely get GitHub, but millions of others do. I'm still slightly stuck on Spotify, if I'm honest. Probably why I just ate up everything on offer at Social Science Foo, because it opened so many doors to me on things that I'd never even thought about. This is The Human and the Machine, brought to you by Editorial Intelligence. Here's the last two audio grabs from Social Science Foo back at the base at Facebook. And by the way, I'm glad you're listening to this and not seeing it because there wasn't a beanbag in sight. There wasn't a sleep pod in sight. In fact, it was all rather cold and industrial looking. That said, they sure know how to convene some good voices. So I found in the tea break the very wonderful Meredith Broussard, who's, you've written a new book called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, so a perfect candidate for the human and the machine. Meredith, tell me about the book. So the book is an exploration of the inner workings and the outer limits of technology. So I am a data journalism professor. I started my career as a computer scientist and then I quit to become a journalist. And what I do now is I build computer code in order to commit acts of investigative reporting. So in other words, AI for good, should we say? Absolutely, AI for good. How problematic overall is AI, though? 
So one of the interesting things that has happened recently is that the term AI is a catch-all. Often when people say artificial intelligence, they mean something very specific. They mean machine learning, which is a kind of AI. But there are actually lots of other kinds of AI, like expert systems or natural language processing. So we've got that confusion happening. And then we also have another confusion with Hollywood. Because when we say artificial intelligence, you kind of think of the Terminator, or you think of killer robots. And that's not what AI actually is at all. That's Hollywood, that's a concept we call general AI, the, the idea that a computer would be as smart as human. It's imaginary. What we have is narrow AI. Machine learning is a kind of narrow AI. And the name machine learning makes it sound like there's a little brain inside the computer, but there isn't. It's just math. It's basically computational statistics on steroids. Do you think that, in fact, journalism itself has slightly failed the public in explaining the nuanced differences in AI? I mean, I certainly remember back in the very, very early days of the internet, journalists were reluctant to even write to explain what email was, but they didn't even understand it themselves. I mean, are we not witnessing a, a bit of a lack of communication to the public about what AI is and indeed isn't? You're exactly right. We have some communication problems inside journalism. We do not do enough to disambiguate artificial intelligence. We don't do enough to disambiguate uh, complex technical topics. Uh, so that's something that I, I try and do in the book. I try and explain things in very plain terms so that we can all be talking about the same thing. If you say AI and you mean killer robots, and I say AI and I mean identifying objects in images, we're talking about apples and oranges and we're not actually going to be able to find common ground because we're talking about totally different things. So I think in order to find common ground when we're talking about these complex technical issues that really affect our lives every day, we need to make sure we're actually talking about the same thing. Hi, I'm Eileen Kaliskan and I'm a professor of computer science at George Washington University. My expertise is in machine learning and artificial intelligence and I especially focus on bias and privacy issues in big data and machine learning, how we can detect bias in AI systems and quantify bias and what the implications of this for society are. And my name is David Dillon Thomas. I am a content strategist at Think Company in Philadelphia. And I am the creator and host of the Cognitive Bias podcast. And I spoke at Social Science Food Camp about how web design can influence and either mitigate or even leverage cognitive biases that we have to help people make better decisions. And Aileen, that's what you spoke about as well. Very specifically, you gave a very interesting presentation about that. Tell us about the specific research you presented today. Sure, so I have been investigating language models and basically what they learn from human language about society and humans as well. And language models in AI reflect that basically they contain all the societal biases we have in society and we can replicate these or recover these with high effect sizes and they are statistically significant as well. And these are things such as, for example, our universally accepted biases, just attitude towards flowers versus insects. But at the same time, we can detect bias such as racism or gender association stereotypes or how we associate older people and so on. 
David, you have a podcast devoted entirely to cognitive bias, so you must have been in heaven at Social Science Bootcamp, right? Oh, absolutely. And sort of seeing how different technologists, social scientists are you know, thinking about these biases and what they're studying about them, how it's influencing, how they're looking for them right, in data science. It's been fascinating, actually, yeah. So as a, as a researcher, as a social scientist, what did you take away from this very, very immersive environment full of social scientists? Uh, as a computer scientist, I found this environment very lively, friendly, and there were a lot of discussions about these social issues. And I wasn't being exposed to these concepts that often before in computer science, and it's really good to have this collaboration and try to see the persp their perspective and what kind of research problems they are dealing with so that I can adapt my research to try to find answers to their problems. It's interesting, isn't it, David, that we're really at, on the nursery slopes of marrying computational science and data research capabilities with the old foot soldier approach of producing social science research. Yeah, and to be clear, and, and this has led to a little bit of my own bias around uh, imposter syndrome, right? It's a classic Dunning-Kruger effect. Like, I am not myself a social scientist, but I have studied cognitive bias almost as a fan, <laughs> obsessively for the past couple of years. So what's been great is really getting a more academic perspective on some of these things. And to your point, I think we are not just in sort of like the infancy of thinking about these problems in their connection with uh, technology, but um, thinking about how uh, design and ethics also play into that. And what's encouraging to me is that ethics, there is a corpus of knowledge around thinking about these problems. And social science has a corpus of knowledge around thinking about bias and understanding and identifying it. And AI now is a body of knowledge around how it can be implemented in technology itself. And it's really events like this that help us talk to each other, because that's the next step. It's not like we don't have something we're not starting from ground zero in any one of these disciplines. We are kind of starting from ground zero and like how do we talk to each other and leverage what each of us knows so that we're making better things and helping people make better decisions. In the next episode, a digital media special from the East Coast of America. We go to New York. We're at New York University, Columbia, National Public Radio and Thrive Global, which actually does have its own sleep pod. Here's a taster of their take on the digital disruption in the world of media with head of brand, Danny Shea. So I would say that the biggest shift that we're pushing in the media space is moving from awareness to action. More from Thrive Global and New York's thriving digital media scene in the next episode. The Human and Machine is an editorial intelligence production in association with socialhealth.expert. The sound editor, is the wonderful George McDonough. It is written and presented by me, Julia Hobsbawm, and this episode was put together in California and London. Thank you for listening. <laughs>